Hello, and welcome to the Vineyard Bowling Green podcast, found exclusively on our Vineyard Bowling Green app. We hope you enjoy this week's message and look forward to seeing you this Sunday. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, like Alyssa said, I'm Garrett. Um, yeah, I really love the Vineyard Movement, and I really love Jonathan and Jasmine and everybody in this church. This church has meant a lot to me, even though I've never really <laughs> consistently got to uh, really come here as a as a faithful member. Uh, just six months ago, everybody knows COVID locked us all down. The the military took a very heavy-handed approach with uh, locking us down, and so I wasn't able to leave Clarksville until just about last month. And so now I'm able to actually kind of bust out a little bit. And uh, sadly, this summer I think we're going to be looking at uh, moving on again. So uh, <clears throat> it's been it's been a wild ride. I know it's kind of it's kind of be kind of the focus a little bit of this sermon here is uh, sort of the current climate in our country, which kind of intersects into what I've been studying in my, my prayer life and in my thought life and as we move, move forward, uh, what, what, where we find hope and where we find peace. So peace or geese, whichever one works. <laughs> um, that's right. <laughs> um, oh, but I did want to make one disclaimer. I always make this disclaimer whenever I preach to you, which is, I think this is number three for me. Uh, if I say anything controversial, uh, heretical, or unbiblical, the message, the angry email goes to Jonathan still. He's still responsible for this because he uh, invited me out here. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of loosely termed this uh, sermon uh, setbacks and disappointments um, and hope in it all. Uh, I generally, whenever I preach or whenever Jonathan asks me if I'd like to preach, I, I love the vineyard and I love Jonathan because this is literally how this happens. I don't know if any of you guys, you've probably gotten this, this message from Jonathan to preach before. It's like, hey, you want to preach? Like, yeah, sure. What do you want me to preach on? Whatever you want to preach on. There's no, there's no left or right limit. It's whatever you want. He did say, though, if you preach in December, then you got to do Advent, which I'm, I love Advent. So, but uh I liked the idea of having a little bit more of a, uh, some autonomy to kind of uh, bring a word this morning. So I generally, whenever I prepare for a sermon, I just hang out in the Gospels because I think that that's the most important part of the Bible. Reading the words of Jesus and seeing the life of Jesus in action is, uh, it just, to me, speaks the most and it's the easiest and safest place to uh, preach from. Although I'm not a I'm a little bit of a risk taker, and I'm not afraid to venture outside of that. But uh, ever since uh, really last month and kind of moving forward, I was reading um, some of the, the prophets, which is always a dangerous thing, especially uh, um, if you're in a charismatic church to an extent. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but really reading uh, the prophet Habakkuk, which is kind of um, a little bit like Job, um, really seeing this cycle of... Uh, of lament to the Lord and the Lord delivering was really speaking to me. And so last week when I was kind of busting open this MacBook here to kind of tab this out, that's where I kind of ended up. So um, really kind of like setting the stage for where we're at. I feel like we are in a bit of a strange time. Um, we're in that weird period uh, where there's been a presidential election and now we have a, a new president coming in. Um, and these next two months are always contentious. First presidential election I can really remember was in the year 2000, which was a heck of an election to to be a part of because you know it was contested up to the point of uh, the Supreme Court ratifying the Electoral College. So I think that uh, we're in a similar similar area right now where a lot of people could, might be upset, a lot of people might be happy. Um, I'm not here to bring a political message. I'm 
I, I am literally by oath supposed to be apolitical as a member of the military. Um, and uh, with that being said, I just want to kind of riff a little bit on some of the observations that I've made just observing the, the election cycle. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm a captain in the United States Army. I'm an uh, intelligence officer, which does not mean I'm intelligent. It's just a title. Uh, and I serve in the, uh, the very prestigious 101st Airborne Division out of Fort Campbell, like Alyssa said. Um, that, uh, yeah, the, the observations that I've had from this past uh, little election is that uh, it's kind of, there's a lot of strangeness in our society. So honestly, in the wake of an election where so many pour out their hopes and dreams and what amounts to essentially, the way I see it, like an overglorified popularity contest where in a lot of minds, fate must be decided, has, can anybody ask, like, just in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own life, has much changed yet? Has much changed already? Will much change? Maybe, but it depends on who you are. And uh, let me leave you with a, a semi-apolitical question that should, I think, be meditated on as we move forward. Why do we put so much hope every four years into essentially walking into a booth and pushing a button? Who elects the two candidates we inevitably are faced with? And who decides that who decides? I think these are very big questions, and I think they're the ones that should be pondered more so than... Uh, what, 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 what's kind of devolved into with uh, social media, especially different uh, organizations that really just try to pull us apart, try to polarize society. You see it in the church. I was actually just listening to a uh, podcast on the way over here, the, the Ferment podcast, you know, the Vineyard Church's podcast, where uh, Adam Russell, one of my uh, biggest mentors throughout my life, the pastor of the uh, Vineyard in Campbellsville, uh, interviews uh, Brian Zond, who's a uh, pastor out in Missouri. And I believe the title of the, the podcast is uh, All Politics Must Submit to Jesus. And I'll just leave you with that. I, I, I felt like coming into this, I couldn't not comment on it because it's been, not because I feel the need to comment on uh, politics, but because it is such in my mind and such in my heart and with my uh, personality type, uh, the Enneagram, I think I'm a number three, if anybody does that kind of stuff. It, uh, I just have to get that out in order to, uh, you know, I would feel empty and hollow if I didn't make some kind of observation on that. Uh, but all politics aside, there's so much to be thankful for in our lives. There's so much to be grateful for and so much to honor God for. No matter the state of affairs, we must always consciously choose optimism over despair. And I think truly optimism in its proper context is not ill-sided. Uh, I've been a lifelong optimist. I really can't break the habit. No matter what, it always seems that things in so many ways are improving and life is getting better. One thing I deeply appreciate about the current climate is that with the rapidly polarizing media, we find ourselves in the systems that, whether intentional or not, seem to bait each other into to making us engage in uh, bitterness or contempt or for something for the other. Uh, the efforts fail plainly, flatten their attempt to harvest hatred. At least, you know, look at the church. You know, some people might say, there's not very many of us in this room right now, but I would say the people that are in this room right now are like the A-team, you know? We all have heartfelt uh, community together. Even in this small one hour that we're gonna have here today, there is a, a love and a very authentic uh, sense of worship that we just had and that we continue to have. Um, I felt really awesome during worship this morning, and I think Alyssa kind of hit it on the nose. It's just... Uh, in those moments of worship, if you can just give yourself in those 20 or 30 minutes just to really heartfelt, uh, 
kind of abandoned to the Lord, um, it's just amazing the over-time effects that that can have on your life. It's not going to make your life perfect. It's not going to change, you know, your outlook overnight or anything like that. But I truly believe that over the years that just worshiping the Lord, it just changes your heart and it changes your mind and it does make things better. And it changes things generationally. Um, so kind of just moving forward a little bit. Uh, so really what I'm kind of riffing on is getting around to is when it comes to the, to, to the current climate is the idea of disappointment and setback. If, there are, if there's such an area of expertise as disappointment and setback, I feel a lot of the time that I would have a PhD in it. Once again, I think that's the, uh, the Enneagram 3. Uh, I feel as though in my professional career-oriented life, I've had many failures, probably too many to count. I've had some very recent failures, perceived uh, professional failures. But in a lot of ways, it has only made me all the better for it. And I think that we have to learn um, in the church, and we have to learn as people, uh, that professional setback, professional uh, disappointment, lifelong disappointment, disappointment in an election, whatever it may be, is something that's like a, kind of a tempering effect. And with that, uh, I, I kind of want to move into uh, the first passage that I had, which was from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, thank you, Elizabeth. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked, wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. So, a little bit about Habakkuk. I'm not much of the biblical scholar, but, uh, you know, he was a prophet, 7th century. Um, I think he was observing the life of wickedness that the, the uh, ancient Chaldeans, I believe, were, uh, were exerting. It's always really funny to me when we don't know much about uh, certain people in the Bible. Like Habakkuk's a prophet, and we know almost nothing about him. We can kind of trace back where, when this uh, message was said. But what, what is unimportant, and what I'm going to get around to, is that it doesn't really matter who he was or what he was doing. The context is important, but it's moreover the, the lament, the, the cry to the Lord for justice and for peace. And so there's a cycle of crying out to the Lord, extolling him for help. And sometimes you see in the Old Testament, they even cry for violence, to which we find ourselves in. And I would say that uh, the cry for help is probably somewhere between 85 and 90% of uh, what my prayer life used to be. Um, how many, does anybody here ever feel like when, whenever you pray to the Lord, that a lot of the prayers that you externalize or that you even internalize are just projections of your own anxiety, of your own cries for help, of your own, uh, you know, Lord, I really want insert here. Um, yeah, that's, that was about 85 to 90% of, of my prayers for the majority of my life. It's probably still a good 50% of my prayer life today. But um, once again, going back to my experience in the vineyard in Campbellsville, I really had some, some seminal moments where uh, I just really started to, real, from various mentors, Understanding that prayer life, while that God will never be upset, obviously, with anybody for externalizing anxiety, externalizing your, your, your wants and desires to him, one of the most uh, spiritually fulfilling aspects of prayer is to just sit out and, and, and meditate with God. 
and this can be achieved in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the ways that I used to do it, uh, um, Ray Hollenbach, who's, he's preached here a, a few times, uh, he, he used to say just holding out his hands and saying, Lord, it's just good enough to be here with you right now. And then just letting, you know, silence fill your mind, fill the room, and just sit in that for even a few minutes. It's meditative, but it's uh, spiritually fulfilling. And what you'll notice, at least what I notice, in the age of uh, social media and, you know, clickbait and like microsecond uh, attention spans, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. It actually takes a lot of uh, focus and concentration to just turn your mind off. And I can't even begin to explain the, uh, like the, the really beneficial health benefits that that has. But I'm here to tell you that it's not easy. And so if there's one thing that uh, you might be able to take away from my uh, message today is maybe try some meditative prayer. The vineyard's pretty big on that. Um, so anyways, getting back to Habakkuk. Uh, so he's crying out to God for deliverance. And why, uh, you know, I don't know how to say this. So really, when he's crying out to the Lord, it would really, in that moment, if you could think of 7th century BCE, he probably feels like he's crying out to no one because he's not seeing any change and he's not seeing any uh, deliverance and he's not seeing anything. And I think that gets to a... Uh, um, the idea of hope, and uh, I'm going to kind of reference it later on in the sermon, but the hope process, the process that we have for believing in something that we don't currently see, it's different, it's heavily distinguished from a fantasy, um, something that we uh, talked a lot about uh, this past week at work is the difference between having hope and having a fantasy. Hope is something you can actualize, something you can work towards, and something that you can actually uh, believe in. And that's what God is for us. God's not a fantasy, right? The Lord and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're not something that is mythical or something that can be, you know, is, is not within our realm of reach. That's one of the beautiful things about the vineyard is that uh, in the vineyard, we're, we're big Holy Spirit people. We really believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit's here with us right now. It's not some far off piece of the Trinity that uh, can't, be, can't be reached. Um, so, uh, Going to kind of transition, I have, uh, Alyssa, can you put up Romans chapter 1, verses 23 through 25? Um, so yeah, this is kind of what I think Habakkuk's getting after. Um, in Romans, Paul says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal and, oh sorry, resembling mortal and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I love the, the, the terminology, um, exchanging truth for a lie, because that means exchanging any of God's truth as expressed in the Bible for anything else. It's that simple. Anything we take out of the Bible and ignore it for a more convenient reality is exchanging the truth for a lie. And it's pretty evident um, throughout all of our culture and throughout much of uh, the way that people carry themselves that uh, we have exchanged many of the truths of the Bible for the lies of the current era, whether that be for simple pleasure, um, for simple uh, gratification, or just because it makes life easier. Because there's a big phrase we use in the Army. Um, I'm sure people use it all the way, but it's, it's the 
the easy wrong or the hard right. And I think that uh, in much of, and, and the Army is by no means a very Christian environment. In a lot of ways, it's heavily anti-Christian. But uh, what I will say is that when the Army says that, I, I really believe that they're, they're on to something because there's a way with which we can carry ourselves where we're choosing the hard right over the easy wrong. And I think that uh, the, the easy wrong in a lot of ways is always known that it's wrong. I'm not saying the, the pain is not the point, obviously. The, the point is not that it's hard, but the point is that almost all decisions and actions that we take in our society today, especially with, with, with uh, Holy Spirit-carrying uh, Christians such as we are, it's so vital that we choose those right things because actions do matter. They're obviously not the justification for anything, but what it will do, and what I do believe that it, it's done in my life, is it's allowed me to be spiritually fulfilled, to have meaning, to have hope, to not get down on despair. And it's helped me to, to walk with the Lord more closely, and it's helped me to understand pain and suffering more clearly, and it's helped me to, uh, to really understand um, really how I fit into the bigger picture of God's plan, if, if I can use a youth group term there for a second. God's plan for my life. Um, once again, yeah, I'm just a big person on meaning. Um, and so I feel like the, the, the cry of my heart throughout my entire spiritual walk and walk with the Lord is what is the meaning of what I'm doing? What is the meaning of who I am and, and how I carry myself forward? Um, and it's with this understand that, understanding that I think the prophet, a prophet such as Habakkuk has himself seen that he's caught between the truth and a lie. And a great mass of people have engaged in the latter. And as we move forward in his testimony to God, and we see this full cycle of lament, God's response twice in both chapters, and then ultimately culminating in a prayer extolling God for his goodness and evoking a sort of psalm-like uh, prayer, the cycle is evident all throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. And I think that uh, I'd like to take a moment to describe how I read the prophets. Like I said, uh, I don't hang out in the prophets I generally try to read my Bible like every day. It doesn't always happen. Uh, but if I do read the Bible, I love reading Psalms. I love reading Proverbs. And I like to read the words of Jesus. So that's kind of like the, the three food groups that I usually uh, try to nourish myself on on a daily basis. I don't really like reading the prophets because I think that uh, they're really complicated at times. And uh, I've been uh, around too many circles where I think the prophets are used to justify some sort of crazy, you know, end times theology or something. I shouldn't say crazy. It's just the kind of stuff that I think that ultimately none of us will, will ever actually get a full understanding of. So um, for full disclosure, I went to a tiny little Christian school for my undergraduate education. It's uh, Campbellsville University. It's about an hour and a half from here. Um, basically, I think most, if not all, of my friends were highly theologically minded when I was in college. Uh, that doesn't mean that they were good, uprighteous people or extraordinarily gifted in understanding of the Bible, but it did mean that they presented themselves with a uh, knowledge that made me feel incredibly humbled and, at a lot of times, stupid when it came to the Bible, especially the Old Testament. It was as if all my friends had sermons memorized on varying aspects of the Bible and if it was a gospel text, there was an evangelical unfolding of God's grace conveniently packaged along the Romans road. If it was any of the first five books of the Bible, there was an explanation on God's provision throughout the early days of mankind and the nation of Israel. 
And if, if it was a Pauline writing, there was an ap epistolic scholarly apparatus with quotes from like John Piper, or Tim Keller, interwoven throughout what appeared to be a firm understanding of what Paul was trying to say. And if it was anything from the prophets, it always perfectly pointed to the coming of Christ and his reign on earth and in the new creation. Has anybody ever felt that way? Like when you talk to, I don't know, theologically minded people or you're ever in those like, uh, have you ever been like a church conference or something like that? I always feel very uh, ignorant to the majority of the Bible. I don't know, it's just maybe a, an insecurity that I have, but uh, that's why I, that kind of drove me to stick, steer clear of uh, a lot of the Old Testament writings just because it is something that I feel like I'm going to get wrong. But I'm here to tell you this morning, you, if you get the Bible wrong, God's not going to lightning bolt you, you know. Obviously, <laughs> obviously it states, you know, uh, in the New Testament that uh, pastors and preachers and stuff will be held to a higher standard. That, that's very true. But if they get it wrong and they're pursuing it with humble intentions and love in their heart and a firm adherence to God, I don't think you can get it wrong. Um, I'll leave that to that. Um, <laughs> All of this is great. I'm certainly not seeking to undermine biblical understanding. I think if people want to put, devote their lives to studying the Bible and understanding the Bible, that is amazing. And there are definitely people called to do it. Um, kind of my point is that biblical understanding should not be two things, two major points. One, biblical understanding should not be a received opinion, meaning when you go around and present information about the Bible. I'm sure people have seen this before. If you're quoting Christian authors more than you're quoting the Bible, there might be a problem. Just because a lot of scholars say a lot of things, and that may or may not be true in your context. And I think that our context matters. And I think the, the principles of the Bible remain unchanged, but the way that they manifest themselves in our lives is completely different than what you might read in a, a good Christian book. Second point is that biblical understanding should not be overly complicated. Um, I love small groups. Um, I really wish I was in one right now. Uh, you know, just with uh, COVID and everything locking everything down, it just uh, has been kind of a, a spiritual drought in terms of the small small church is what I always think of it as. Um, and, you know, re reflecting on my time in small groups, I've come to the understanding that it's in that context that I've received more knowledge, understanding, and spiritual enrichment and beautiful community than I've typically gotten from a sermon. Once again, I'm not undermining the value of the Big C Church or of pastors or preachers. Obviously, I would be kind of hypocritical since I'm preaching right now. Uh, this is just my attempt to explain why a prophet like Habakkuk should not be avoided for fear of confusing the messaging or fear that one may misinterpret what a prophet might be saying. Um, Alyssa, can you throw up Habakkuk 2? Awesome, thank you. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The Lord answered Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. I will sh it will surely come. It will not delay. Be behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. I think God's response is beautiful. And uh, patience in the midst of adversity is the way that I really hear this. You know, grace under pressure, except clearly that's not the way God sees it. The idea that we may brace ourselves in the midst of tension is sort of a man-made and sort of fabricated opinion, I think. 
I think adopting God's eyes in scenarios of trial and trouble, we have to understand that tempering our lives and our minds to adopt that of the Lord's will inherently incur a paradigm shift. What I mean is a difference in the way that we think. What I'm trying to say is that the more that we seek the Lord and uh, sort ourselves out in his image, the less the woes of the world will seem to matter. It doesn't diminish their significance, but it certainly allows us not to be consumed by them. Um, I've recently been working through, I'm, like I said, I've, I'm a huge nerd. I've been working through uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Anybody ever read that in here? It's uh, about 1,200 pages long. Uh, <laughs> I really loved it. Uh, COVID kind of gave me the task to, to finish it. Uh, and I was really just kind of shocked at a particular section um, regarding uh, the burning of Moscow. So essentially, War and Peace, I'll try to summarize it in 30 seconds or less. Uh, <laughs> it's really about you know, the time in uh, Russia between 1805 and about 1812 um, where the French obviously invaded Russia in 1812. Napoleon's army kind of gets decimated, but Russia survives, obviously. Uh, and, and more than that, that's just the setting. More than that, it's, it's, this, it's a crazy philosophical treatise. You know, uh, many, many, many complex characters, uh, lots of deep philosophy, lots of kind of Christian philosophy, um, although Tolstoy himself would tell you clearly that that was not his intention. Um, but I was finding some similarities as I was preparing this sermon between the prophet Habakkuk and characters in the, the, the novel of War and Peace. Um, essentially, there, there's a particular section, um, there's a particularly horrifying event, which is the burning of Moscow. It, roughly, this is right after a battle where roughly 100,000 French and Russian soldiers were brutally killed. It's called the Battle of Borodino. Uh, Tolstoy being deeply impacted by the effects of the war as well as its impact on his life. He was born shortly after this. I think he was born in 1828. Uh, his life describes the burning as such. Moscow had to burn down because as its inhabitants left it and as inevitably as a pile of wood chips has to catch fire if sparks pour down on it for several days, a wooded town in which the presence of the inhabitants who own the houses and of the police, there are fires almost every day during the summer. It cannot help burning down when there are no inhabitants there, but troops smoking pipes, making campfires on Senate Square, or are of the Senate's chairs and cooking meals twice a day. How much greater then is the possibility of fires in an empty wooded town in which foreign troops are billeted? The savagery of the French are not to blame for anything here. And I just couldn't help but think as I was reading that, um, that's very similar to almost a prophetic rendering. I may be kind of going off in literary left field here, but uh, I think that uh, much of the writing that uh, he describes, he's not ascribing blame to one side or the other. He's just describing outright horror. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the burning of the city of Moscow in 1812 caused horrific damage. Luckily, it didn't cause that much loss of life, but uh, it was very similar to what I feel like Habakkuk was prophesying against was just the outright abuse of people on the earth, on each other, on society. And uh, I think that that, uh, in a lot of ways, has a lot of modern parallels from modern-day prophecy, I guess you could say, or, say, or not ascribing blame, but describing the terror that, uh, that existed. Um, so he's, really, that's kind of a realist approach, meaning loosely that his lens in viewing the current states of affairs is, is unencumbered by an idealistic or romantic sentiments, therefore providing an easier avenue with which to view issues from a, a disinterested standpoint. 
he further defined War and Peace as not a novel, even less is it a poem, and still less a historical chronicle. To me, that's the perfect way to describe how I view the prophets and how I think we should view uh, interpretations of those books of the Old Testament. Not a novel, even less a poem, and still less a historical chronicle. More so, they are describing times in the intersections of their prayers with God and God's response to them as, uh, as the events unfolded prior to Christ. And then even leading up into his life. Obviously, we've got, uh, I don't think they're defined as modern-day prophecies in the New Testament, but obviously the book of Revelation is a prophetic book that looks forward after the time of Christ. Um, so this kind of circles back to my earlier point of biblical understanding. I personally view the prophets as not historians, not psalmists, and even less so scholars attempting to inform God's will on mankind and the nation of Israel. The prophets are full display flawed people of God that chronicle their own prayer and lament cycle for the edification of those to read. Yes, they did prophecy, and those prophecies are significant and that they came to pass. However, I think there's a bit of losing the forest for the trees, if that is the primary intention behind interpreting Old Testament scholars. And this kind of brings me to the last thing that I'd like to discuss this morning, and it's something that's uh, very near and dear to my heart that I kind of alluded to earlier called the hope cycle. The hope cycle is a term used uh, really just to describe the process of hope. And uh, it's, it's a, uh, more of a term used in um, kind of modern-day psychology and, and therapy. I got a lot of that because uh, my wife's a therapist, and so she can help me out with a lot of these areas. Um, but uh, I, was, I was also kind of, as I was preparing this sermon, kind of um, finishing up uh, another book that I brought here with me. Um, it's called uh, <clears throat> Man's Search for Meaning. It's by a guy named Viktor Frankl, and uh, he's kind of the father of a, of a therapy style called logotherapy, and um, essentially I'll, I'll give a little backstory on Viktor Frankl. He um, was a practicing psychologist in the 1920s, 1930s. He was a Jew in Austria. He had the chance to, to escape to America and chose not to, and actually ended up in uh, four different uh, Nazi-held concentration camps. Um, and uh, he lived, uh, very, there was obviously a lot of suffering. He was in Auschwitz, Dachau, um, and two others. He was there for about three years when he escaped, or excuse me, when he, the camps were liberated. And he came back to Austria. He found out that his wife, who was pregnant before they uh, were um, condemned to concentration camps, had passed away. And the majority of his family had been uh, exterminated in the uh, concentration camps, very sadly. And that led him to a, a lifelong journey of uh, trying to figure out what motivates people, what makes people have meaning in their lives. And uh, what logotherapy, the, the heart of it is, is the idea that people find most meaning in their lives not through pursuing, um, not through pursuing an in-state or a goal, but rather allowing in-states and goals to be achieved like, kind of unintentionally, meaning... I'll give an example. In the church, if your goal is to become closer to Jesus, right, as I think most of our goals are, the, the idea of I need to become closer to Jesus, I'm deliberately working to become closer to Jesus like in a scientific manner, isn't probably going to be very helpful. And it probably isn't going to create a lot of meaning. But what is going to create a lot of meaning is, you know, 
the vineyard values, right? Radical generosity, giving yourself to service, being in community, reading your Bible, loving your spouse or your friends around you, doing all of those things and focusing your time on those aspects. And all of a sudden, you're going to be surprised by the fact that, wow, I'm closer to Jesus or, wow, the Holy Spirit is alive in my life, as opposed to just simply like, I will be closer to God, period. You know, that's what I'm going towards. Just allowing yourself to be surprised by uh, really the... Um, the, the closeness with God that can be created through um, just the basic things that you see Jesus doing in the Gospels, right? Walking around, talking to people, obviously like healing people, laying hands, praying, being in community, giving yourself, you know, giving away belongings, you know, all kinds of things that uh, really um, mean a lot. Actually, it's kind of a little off script, but... It was like a year ago, two years ago, we made those, uh, it was Alyssa's idea, those uh, bags for homeless people. Man, that was awesome. I only got, I only took two with me, but both encounters I had with a homeless person was just absolutely amazing as you hand a bag of, you know, just basic essentials like some granola bars, a toothbrush, I think some had like socks in them, you know, just basic stuff. But that generated a conversation, you know, it generated a, a heartfelt encounter, and then it was, you know, hey, you know, God bless you, drive off. Um, something just as simple as that can create so much meaning. It's memories that live on in my, in my mind. Um, and with that note, that's kind of what I'll uh, leave us with. Um, if I could invite uh, the team back up for uh, communion.